Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 54. It is just me and Azeel this time. Uh, Griff couldn't make it. He has had some uh, work schedule conflicts recently. So no Griff this time. Uh, we'll miss him. And I'm sure he'll chime in on the forum. I think me and him were the only ones posting in the last thread just going back and forth on stuff. So anyway, um, we have had a few new milestones. If you've been paying attention to our uh, Patreon donation drive, uh, for new Berserk translations. We swapped some things around and added some new milestones while at the same time achieved some milestones since we last recorded. So since then, uh, we have gotten confirmed we will be getting a new Miura translation, uh, which is awesome, or a new Miura interview translation. So that's great. That was, you know, one of the first milestones we envisioned for this project. So reaching that so quickly, actually, I think we reach it probably in a week or so, I think it was. So that was awesome. Uh, the next milestone after we swap things around, uh, we also reached, and that is that Mira's earliest works, Futatabi and Noah will be translated. So if you haven't seen those yet, uh, we'll try to figure out a way to have you guys check that out or like a link to where you can get the young animal, things like that. Um, or just, you know, check out the translation as, as it is. Uh, anyway, those are really cool. Uh, I think you guys are really be excited about seeing those early stuff, see how Mira's stuff has evolved over time. Uh, in addition, we added some new milestones. One was uh, we are trying to get all of Mira's tr- comments in Young Animal translated. Uh, for those that don't know, since, I guess since the beginning of the series, uh, I can't remember if you did an Animal House or not. I think you did. Uh, Mira leaves one line, basically two line comments. They're usually very brief. But what's interesting about them is he gives little insights into his life. They're short, but they're really interesting. Uh, sometimes it's just a quick aside, or sometimes he'll say, like, buy the vault, buy the new, the new volume. But sometimes he'll say some really cool stuff, like what he's been doing, what his hobbies are, if he has, like, health issues, so much in that. And, and keep in mind the breadth of this. You're talking about his comments over the course of 25 years. So lots of interesting stuff to come from those if we reach that milestone. I hope we do. Really excited about that particular one. I think that would be really neat. And the last milestone we've added is that if we reach it, Puella will translate more interviews and at a faster rate. So it's kind of like hyper mode for the translation effort she's already, you know, committed to for the mirror translations. So that's really cool. Uh, it's kind of kick things into overdrive. The final milestone we're still quite a ways away from is the translation of all of Gigantomachia. So look forward to all of those things. If you haven't contributed yet, uh, consider doing so. Just look and uh, see if there's anything interesting you'd like to see in the perks. There's some cool stuff happening very soon for those that have already contributed. And to those people, we wish you a very big thank you. Uh, we're trying to see uh, how many milestones we can roll out all at once. Some are ready to go right now. Uh, some are going to – sorry, perks will be rolling around very soon, some sooner than others. So look forward to those. And with that, we are going to turn to our, our main section of the show, which is continuing our reread section, and that is Volume 11 this time. Volume 11, um, it kind of sits in a special place in my head, and I imagine it does for a lot of other Berserk readers as well, because it's almost completely devoted to one kind of fight, and that is Guts and Weald. Uh, you know, there are a lot of big fights in the series, but not all of them have the kind of pacing that this one does. And that's kind of what makes this one interesting to me is uh, with the exception of Zod, which is kind of a special case because he, you know, retreated without really going all out on the, on guts. 
this was really Gut's first real encounter with an apostle in the in the in the, in the wild, so to speak, uh, when the no holds barred fight, and that's what makes it interesting to me is to see what Guts is capable of even even now without the Dragon Slayer, without the knowledge he has of apostles and their you know regenerative abilities. Uh, it makes the fight really interesting. And in addition to that, Wild's a very interesting character. Uh, I think he's very charismatic, entertaining. Uh, he's an interesting. He's an interesting guy. He's also pretty much just you know a lout. And so his how how far how how degrading he, he treats his, his his guys and all that stuff is is interesting to watch as well. But yeah, I think he's a uh, pretty unique uh, in the basic world. You know, mm-hmm. especially the focus that's put on him. His whole behavior, his attitude, and the way he envisions things, and even his place in society is, is quite unique. We, we get to see uh, apostles in positions of power in the Black Souls Monarch, but not really like that. And they don't behave like that either. So I think he's really, uh, he's almost like the prototypal apostle, you know, but, uh, you know, in a very specific manner. I really like the, the character, generally speaking. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it that way is where he might have fit in the Falcon army, uh, you know, as it is now. <laughs> and I think we've said before, I, I tend to agree. He's probably just one of the generic guys. He, he certainly wouldn't be one of the lieutenants. I mean, that's not even, not even in question. He's probably just one of those guys that, you know, Zod, you know, smashes the head of, uh, in, in front of Flora's mansion, that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, pretty much. He's, he's a, I think so, you know, like I could imagine him being like, you know, Locus has his guys and he has a few of them that are, you know, like his second in command, you know, like, a, mm-hmm. and I think Wild could be like that for maybe for Zod or, or something like that. But yeah, nothing, nothing incredible. Not, not, right. uh, not anyone that's worth mentioning among the wider group of apostles. Yeah. <clears throat> we'll also just get into the, that's a kind of an overview of the volume, uh, into the cover. It's an interesting take on Gut's armor. It's a kind of a full frontal of and very detailed look at his uh, the section of the series and his armor. Again, it looks very piecemeal, but also has some cohesion to it as well. It looks like it's made of many different parts, but it does have a theme to it. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I really like the. You know, I think I've always thought he had a kind of samurai style to it. You know, that armor, the way it's uh, it's done, especially the shoulder pads. Yeah, the uh, pauldrons, I think, is the name for those things. The cover is by... Yeah, well, they are not exactly pauldrons, but yeah, the pauldrons are the things that are on top of that, uh, technically speaking. Maybe spaulders, you know? Okay, sure. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, and then there's a way, of course, he has uh, the crossbow in the hand, you know? I think it kind of reminds us of what is to come, especially if the apostles in the background, you know? Yeah, I, I also the color scheme of this is really nice. The the very menacing purple and reds that are happening swirling around him. Also, the way uh, it's framed. You know, he's he's literally being framed by the different apostles that we've seen, which is again what makes this interesting to me is is guts facing against an apostle. You know, a no holds barred fight. And, and here the the cover also focuses on the apostles that he has encountered, or rather, I guess readers have encountered by this point. You know, Zod, yeah. and, and Rasheen. Well, there's also a snake baron that's uh, hidden in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is he really? Zod and, yeah, in between Zod and the count, you can see the snake, you know. it's uh, You've got oh. to look really well because it's dark. But uh, w- what I like a- about this is that you see these three apostles in uh, a darker, colder shape, you know, a kind of purple. And there's Roshin that's 
bright and coming up while they are, you know, at the back. And it seems to imply to me that these are people Gus has, uh, Jose met in his past. I mean, for the reader at least, it's what mm-hmm. we've seen before. And Roshin is a, an apostle of course that we've yet to see Gus encounter, you know, properly. So. Yeah, I right. think it's a pretty interesting cover in that uh, in that regard because it's almost a hint to the reader of what's to come. Of course, without without of, of course, yeah, and also just, kind of a reminder of, of what's been in the past as well. Again, I mean, I yeah. think the purpose of the cover, more than a lot of them, is to lend focus to the the, the content of the volume, and it is it is rather apostle centric. We actually learn yeah a, quite a bit about apostles in this one if you if you approach it from a new reader's perspective. You know, the things Weald says towards the end about the apostles, you know, commandment and all that kind of stuff. That's all new stuff. So Yeah. Anyway, turning into the volume, we have the preview image. Um it's just guts, you know, right as he makes basically the killing blow or what, you know, what should have been the killing blow on his neck. But I like about it though is also as, you know, it makes you wonder if you're not seeing the volume yet. What is what is something that could test his limits like this? He looks like he's going all out, and the, the way it's drawn yeah. with such thick brush strokes, like ang- angry brush strokes. You know, it's it kind of reminds us of you know what we'll see in the eclipse. So it's guts, you know, pushing his limits, and it makes you wonder what could have done that to him as you open the volume. So yeah, uh, this the volume opens with the king, kind of focusing on what his mindset is. We got a little bit of this in the last volume, but this is him by himself. You know, kind of yeah. pondering his circumstance and, and and yeah, and it's a, the throne room too, which is the first time we see it. You know, that shot of the the roof and the the roofs of how uh, to say Windham and everything. It's the first time we see the throne room. I, I think it's how uh, to say it's interesting that we see him in this state on that throne in that room. You know, yeah, the, the juxtaposition is really interesting here because. As you say, it's the first time we're seeing the throne room like this. And it's, you know, it's like the height of monarchic power in Midland. You know, such, uh, all, all this different artistry around him, very ornate. And then there's just this decrepit old man in the center of it, not even caring. Uh, just the contrast between the two, you know, beauty and ugly, you know, combined yeah. there. It's interesting. What I like about this, uh, you know, he, he's not saying anything too revealing here. Um, although, I mean, I would like to go into his state of mind a, a little bit. He's clearly not insane, but he's been driven to this kind of like intense focus on this one aspect of his life. And it, it, is, yeah. it is, it is not, it hasn't driven him mad. It has driven him, I don't know. I don't know if there's a proper word for it. Just, uh, well, not, you know what? Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say not healthy. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say that I think he realizes that uh, his jealousy or I don't know, his feelings for, you know, he, yeah, I, I guess we could say his jealousy for what Griffiths and Charlotte, you know, have had together, you know, have driven him to this kind of state of mind. It might not be, you know, completely insane, but I, I think yeah, he's verging on, on the... You know, I don't know, maybe obsessive, you know, behavior, that kind of stuff. I think you could, you could say it, you know, it goes into, you know, uh, close to insanity to me. At least sure. it's, uh, that direction. I mean, I, I think by the end of his life, he's pretty much there in terms of sanity, uh, in volume yeah. 17, right before his death. Um, I also wanted to talk, I thought it was interesting, the symbolism here that his crown falls off. 
In that, you know, he's yeah. clearly not he's clearly not pursuing Griffith as the king for the benefit of the kingdom. It's for obviously it's for personal reasons. And yeah. the fact that he's king is merely secondary. It's like a forgotten aspect, you know. He, yeah. he doesn't care about his title or his power anymore. Yeah, I agree. The, the fact he lets his crown fall down and then he kicks it, you know, I yeah. think it really emphasizes the fact that he's completely obsessed with this matter and just nothing else nothing else matters. And there's a shot of him crying, you know, saying he can't mm-hmm. forgive, you know, just, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it really does look insane to me. I mean, not completely there. Right. This is something that occurred to me as I was reading this volume. I've never really considered it before, so I, I was interested in your take on this. We've talked before about Hellfire and uh, the consequence of getting involved with members of the God Hand or apostles in general. Mm. Like like what happened with Zondark's life, for example, when you know his life became crossed by the Counts and what happened yeah. to him and his family and as a result. And of course we know what happened with Guts when you know his life became crossed with uh, Griffith and the, the God Hand. Do you think what happened with the king, the exaggerated turn his life took, was a direct result of that? And, and obviously it was because he's obsessed with Griffith, a future member of well, the God But I yeah. mean – in terms of the exaggerated aspects of this. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, when you look at this, the king's life was, you know, mostly fine and he would have probably gone on fine either way, you know. But uh, what, what we have here is, uh, yeah, there's this matter of Griffiths, but even beyond that, the king is dying. Even now, he's already dying. And why is he dying? He's dying because Ganishka is coming, you know. Mm. I'm, I'm get, getting a, a bit, you know, ahead of this volume, but the thing is, in the grand scheme of, you know, of things, where things are planned, the king, he's already played his role. You know, now his role is over. He's going, he's just, every, only thing that's left for him to do is die, and then the country will be ripe for the seizing by the cushions, and then will be ripe for the savioring by, you know, <laughs> Griffiths. So, the thing is, yeah, I think very clearly this man's life is completely tangled up uh, in the threads of causality. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, to me, okay. there's a direct consequence of it. Okay. It is kind of hard to argue that. I guess, <clears throat> you know what it is, is that I, I have a hard time articulating Hellfire and, and how it could relate well, to characters like this. You know, I think... You know, I think the two concepts are quite, you know, specific. When Froa talks about, you know, Hellfire, it's a bit, you know, it's specific, relates to karma. Mm-hmm. I think here we not necessarily, we don't necessarily have, you know, karma, you know, to mind, but it's more, you know, how to say. I guess what you could say is that there's a natural of those things where the, you know, people's, you know, behavior is divided by karma, that kind of stuff. And then there's the either of evil, the God Hand, and what they do doesn't necessarily follow those rules. They don't, you know, follow a nature of those things. They're trying to manipulate things to do what they want. So, uh, well, in this case, the king, you know, like he's tangled up in that. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure actually what you want to say about Hellfire. <laughs> just, <laughs> so, just, just, just like I said, just using the examples of Zondark and, and Guts in terms of how how dramatically their lives changed after being basically tapped by causality to play a role. You know. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening here. And it is, again, it's hard to argue against it. It's just, uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking on a larger scale about, uh, what it means to come across an apostle and what, what encountering an apostle does to a human well, life, you know. Your life is fucked, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, pretty much. much. You know, yeah, I, think, yeah. I, think, I think you raise a good point though, in that his condition really is, it's a result of him 
trapped in the current of causality. You know, he has a role to play in terms of being the the mad deceased king. You know, and he, and he is swept up in that, and he's fully embraced. Yeah, that, and, you know, yeah, he's just you know Jose uh, Pound on the right. you know big chessboard. But yeah, generally speaking, you know, apostles they've got this name for a reason, and we talk about the idea of evil and what the name means and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, they are agents of the eat of evil. And, yeah, what does it embody? You know, evil. So the mm-hmm. thing is, encountering apostles is encountering the a concentration of the evil of the world. So, yeah, your life gets fucked. And the thing is, it's unfair. It's unfair. You, you don't get a second chance. But to go back to Hellfire, as you were mentioning, well, the average guy, like, you know, in these volumes, as a girl, she... All the people who help, you know, the Falcons, they encounter uh, wild and they are killed. And uh, yeah, that's how uh, normal life, you know, evolves mm-hmm. when they meet an apostle. They're killed, right. and uh, and that's it. We transition to kind of a flashback. We see the king as a younger man. Uh, it's kind of nondescript how fall, how long ago this was. We can imagine it was probably a decade or so ago. Uh, he's talking about the prolonged war, trying to think of ways to amass more forces for that. And uh, he comes across a plan to recruit convicts. Now, it yeah. immediately brings the question. We know Wilde's an apostle uh, at this point because of his introduction in Volume 10. Why would an apostle uh, be a convict? But, um, I mean, to me, the answer is ready, readily apparent in that he wanted to be part of this scheme. He, he wanted to take charge or have this opportunity to have, like, a group of people and to be yeah. sanctioned by the state, basically. He's taking advantage of this situation that the king is offering is, is how I saw it anyway. Yeah, well, there's a, a few ways to think about it. I think first I'd like to say that I like how uh, the story transition into explaining, you know, why it's backstory from the king, you know. I, I like how that's uh, brought up. But, okay. uh, yeah, through the king recalling it, I think it's pretty clever. Anyway, yeah, you know, I think it could be either that or he actually became an apostle while in captivity. Oh. But, uh, you know, because he was a frail old man before. So, yeah, maybe, you know, he was dying in a cell and, you know, a bear came and, you know, he got his way like that. It's possible. Or either, either that or, like you said, he, you know, came into that. Uh, already as an apostle and it was just part of a scheme to, you know, get into that kind of stuff. But I think there are several ways to sure. explain it. I, I mean, it kind of just, it kind of begs the question, why wouldn't he just escape? If he's capable of the feat we're about to see, which is, you know, putting a man on top of the tower, surely he could have forced his way well, out. He could have really just, he could have just killed, you know, everybody there and get yeah. out by punching through the wall. But uh, I think it also shows what kind of character Wild is. You know, mm-hmm. there's a character like Zod who just kills someone and gets to get on with it. But he likes, he's a, how to say? Well, I mean, he's mischievous. In yeah, a death, that's, in what a, I, well, in that's in exactly a, what I want to say. Mischievous. Jesus, fuck. Thank you. Okay. I was, I mean, he's mischievous in a lethal way, you know. He, yeah. He's almost, and I'll get into this later on as more of his, him is revealed. He is he is a lot like a, just a little kid with a bunch of power in his hands. And what would you do with that? You would use it irresponsibly and you know torturously to a certain yeah. extent. So and that I think that plays into like his character design. Mira very clearly, how to say, modeled him after a monkey, and several characters make a reference to that uh, throughout the, the story. And here he does look physically like, like a monkey, and 
I think his behavior is also very clearly related to that, and the fact he's mischievous is also related to that. And that's also something that's associated typically in uh, Asian uh, folklore. You know, uh, monkeys are mischievous. It's a very, mm-hmm. uh, I would say, it's, it's a common thing. So, yeah, I think that goes with character. And the, the fact he's mischievous is that, yeah, you know, like he's the kind of guy that might just see how things go and, you know, do that kind of stuff. And even the way he treats Babo, the guy that, you know, comes to oppose him, it's just re- a reflection of uh, his state of mind, you know? Right. I, I do like not just um, Barbo's design, just, just this gross generic convict with missing eye. And, and he even makes – Weld even makes fun of him. It looks like an octopus because of the shape of his yeah. head and everything. Yeah. But I like I – like, I really like – it's kind of an introduction to Weld's personality and, and how he treats Barbo. You know, he's smiling at him. He, he appreciates, you know – his his, state, his status in the world as the big strong guy, but you know he knows he needs his charisma to lead people. And oh yeah, his, I, I, his, I actually love that shot of him, you know, with a black background as yeah. he talks about the power of charisma, that kind of stuff. It's really it's really great, and uh, yeah, it really emphasizes. There are several shots in these volumes that emphasize the apostle nature of Wild, and uh, <clears throat> I think uh, yeah, it's, it's one of them. You know, that look, that intense look. It's, it's pretty scary, you know. As I think that that's a good thing. You can see this character looks actually almost ridiculous at times and mischievous, but yeah, suddenly he's very, very scary. Well, there's a there's a certain, and again, I come back to this a lot. What makes Wild interesting is he's got he's got kind of his own like you know ethos for how he approaches oh, yeah. life. <laughs> he's got he's got he's got certain convictions that are just disturbing, but he, he lives his life with a a certain credo, you know. Yeah, uh, and he follows through with all these things, and so basically, just to kind of move things along, you know, he he puts on this what he calls a, you know a performance for uh, or, or as a present for him as the new leader, and he puts Barbo on top of a, a tower. Now, yeah. do you think he fully translated it in like a split second to make that happen, or did he just uppercut him? You know, what was your thought on on how that happened? And of course, we don't know, but what was your guess on that? I always thought uh, he just. Yeah, he just, you know, gave him a fucking, like, a giant uppercut and threw him there. You know, I, that page is pretty clear. I really like that page, you know, that it kind of emphasizes the split second thing of it. Like, Wire's face, really a demonic face then. Barbo's mm-hmm. uh, surprise, and then the onlookers and the crowds. And, you know, from what the, the king recalls and from everything, I think he just, from what we know about the apostles, I think he just used his strength. Maybe he, how to say, yeah, like half transformed mm-hmm. to pull off the feet. But yeah, I, I don't think he fully transformed and then, you know, returned back to normal in just, you know, I, I don't think he, it's even possible for an apostle. Yeah, uh, it's, he does, I mean, regardless of how we reason it, he does something really strange. I mean, so what's happening with his eyes in that picture, in that, in that panel? And the way the lines are drawn, it, it does imply to me that there's some kind of supernatural thing happening more than just merely using a strength. Also, we see, we see Barbo's reaction before yeah. anything, presumably before anything had happened to him. So it's like he got a full eye of something, but it doesn't make a lot of sense because there's a whole crowd of humans around. And the next time we see him, we out, he has his hands still bound. So. None of it makes any sense, but either way, it was a spectacular feat, you know? So. Well, you know. Honestly, I, I think it's uh, I think it's possible. He just, you know, how to say, 
just tapped a little bit into that power and just mm-hmm. threw him out. And, and I, I think the guy would be surprised by seeing him move so fast and throw him up like that. You know, <coughs> in the volume, you see why I like to several times do things that are really crazy. I mean, the way he fights guts, mm-hmm. what he does, you know, he's very... You know, we were saying earlier that he's just, he wouldn't have been a, a great apostle, like, like among the whole of them. But still, you know, I mean, that's a guy that still, you know, stopped God's sword with his mouth, with his teeth. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, I see, I think he was pretty strong, you know, even compared to the average guy. And I'm not surprised he could throw a guy up a, a tower like that. Um, <clears throat> moving on into, you know, we, we see kind of a quick, montage of what life was like for his him and his army i can't even call it an army really they called them the black dog knights you know wow i mean i didn't really even think about them having the word knights in their title it just seems well yeah you know it's funny because it uh casts off griffith's knighthood in a whole new light you know yeah <laughs> like no it's a fact it's a fact yeah even and i think you know i find it interesting because it also uh how to say it gives us uh Another look at the less savory side of the king, you know, how mm-hmm. he handled the black dogs, you know, the way he even just, you know, let them go to uh, a remote, you know, part of the, the land and actually just allowed them to behave like they did, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Well, I think it's, we all successfully carved out a niche within the king's army and ruling, even ruling the king by fear. As he yeah. says, you know, I love, absolutely love this panel of Weld, you know, bowing down before the king. But you can still see this, like, grin on his face, this this evil smile as his head is bowed, you know, as the king says that he was afraid of this strange man. Yeah, of course. Really? And uh, as he should have been, actually, because uh, <laughs> even yeah. bowing like that, he could have killed him. Right. Um we transition to the Falcons as they make their escape uh, away from the city. They pass by this farm where... um I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's pretty straightforward what happens. And what's interesting, though, is that, you know, despite the fact that uh, the king has issued this decree, you know, that Griffith is still the people's hero and that no arbitrary de- decree can change their opinion of him for that. You yeah. know, they, say he, they couldn't believe that someone like Griffith would be guilty of treason, you know. So they yeah. help them out and give them supplies and give them a wagon. Uh, and make their escape. And I guess, you know, it's, it's nice to see, uh, Griffith smiling in this little, this little scene here. He's, you know, grateful for the people that have helped him along the way. What's interesting is though, of course, you know, his figure is, you know, garbed. He's still, his condition is still kept a secret from everyone. Obviously, you know, he's got, he's, uh, heavy clothing on. He's he got his cape around him and everything. So. Yeah. No one really knows what his status is. And as we learn in this volume, it, it seems to be that's implied that Griffith himself probably doesn't know his own capabilities yet. He's learning his capabilities as he tries to grip a sword and things like that. So maybe he doesn't yeah. even quite know what his future is until later on, until it's put yeah, in full Yeah, split. of course. I, I think actually what happens is his volume is a determinant uh, to his choice later on, sacrifice. It's, you know, this whole thing... You know, people often mistake this thing like, yeah, the torture did it, or it's uh, the fact, you know, God said Casca were in love. Or, so, but no, it's a whole, the whole adventure was necessary. Even seeing God's fight, being, you know, powerless to do anything, uh, all of it, uh, how to say, participated into, you know, making him make the choice. And, uh, yeah, that, that also played a, a big part, of course. 
As they leave the farm, there's this really dramatic uh, shot of them seeing Wyndham uh, on the horizon as Griffith is letting go flowers, you know, as they're falling behind as they leave the city and yeah. saying it's um, possibly the last time that they'll see uh, – Judo says it's the last time they'll see this the city. And I think it, it is very, for very, some, some of these characters. Yeah, I think it's very touching actually, uh, the whole thing. You see them looking back, even – What's a cask and Griffith and Griffiths, you know, with a bouquet of flowers flowing in the wind. He thinking back to his uh, past as a, a boy running in the alleyways. It's a very, it's all very dramatic and very touching. I think. Yeah, and again, he has the the image of that specific castle in his mind. You know, his his kingdom as it's you yeah. know falling away, as the potential for it is moving further and further away. Yeah, and you see Casca actually grabbing his shoulder, you know, tighter. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, of the sadness of it all, and even Gus just turned his face away. You know, it's, it's very, it's very touching. And actually, and what's great is that it transitioned directly to Wild arriving to the same place. I and, love that transition. Yeah, the almost yeah. almost instant. You know, there's this, there is a bit of a, a a gap, and then leaving and Wild arriving. But the way it's done, you know, the the foot just like you know planted yeah. into the ground, almost like a western kind of standoff kind of way. Very Pretty imposing, much. and the way he just, <laughs> looks at her, his his face to the girl, the way yeah. she trembles instantly is fucking, you know, what a monster. I wonder if he scouted out that wolf or dog before he set out, or does he just put that on? Did he have that like on a coat rack before he walked out the yeah. door today, or did he did he actually hunt that down? I love you know the eyes that are just rolling on the side. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good question, and just indicative of the kind of character he is. You know, this is a, you know what this is? This, the next two pages are extremely economical terror. You know, every panel, yeah. so, something just horrible, horrible is happening. You yeah. know, and, and one is, you know, guys get a spear through the mouth and then children are being thrown into the fire while limbs are being severed. You know, guys are smiling as this woman's clothes are being torn off, you know, and yeah. the, the darkness of the, sh- the shading of the next of the full page, uh, yeah. as he's raping her is all very just, Induces terror pretty quickly. Yeah, he rapes her with corpses of children, you know, right next to it. And his face, actually, his face on that planet really is the face of a monster, you know. There's, right. there's nothing human in it. Right. His eyes, you know, even the eyes are crazy. I, I really like the way Murad depicts his eyes in, throughout the volume. It's, uh, I don't know what technique he uses, but it's very effective. Sure. In, in the in the final panel of this episode, he's actually it's almost breaking the fourth wall as he you know says his motto. Uh, yeah. he's al- he's almost looking at the at the the reader you know when he says this these things. Yeah, and and uh, the thing is actually how to say again it's a it fits with the monkey theme for the character you know mm-hmm. the whole mischievous aspect the way he's just in it for the fun of it you know right of course. But, uh, you know, the difference being that this is someone imbued with, you know, terrible power as well, in addition to being evil. So just yeah. imagining, imagining the possibilities of this being let loose. Um, <clears throat> you know, and also, we'll, we'll talk about this later on as well, but I wanted to bring it up now, uh, that the God Hand made this creature, you know? The God Hand, uh, empower these evil, evil beings with this power and basically let them run loose, you know, as if there could, there could ever be any, uh, question for the God Hand's true motives. Something like this is possible. You know, it kind of, it's almost the worst example of what an apostle is capable of, uh, let loose upon the world. 
Well, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the way, the thing is, it's a way it's shown to us also, but when you think back to the, the for example, Snake Baron, you know, right. he ate children for mm-hmm. dinner every night. He ate children. I mean, yeah, it's, it's uh, terrible. They kill people and rape and things, but like the Snake Baron ate children. And he probably was also raped, you know, and killing, whatever. But the thing is, yeah, and he also, just because he was bored, he just burned the town and killed everyone. So I think from this is just a reinforcement mm. uh, of what apostles are. But I think right from the beginning, we show a very clear picture. And the Count is also, in many ways, I mean, he's a, how say, he's a more nuanced character. But mm-hmm. he, in many ways, he's also a monster and... Uh, and I think it shows, and yeah, of course, Wild is a, like I said before, he's almost a, an archetype of what an apostle, you know, would be, you know. But uh, yeah, I think they are all pretty much evil. And it's only a matter of how well some of them can hide it. That's true. I guess it's unfair to try to compare how evil some of them are, because they're all capable of horrible things and have yeah. done horrible things. I guess what's interesting about the snake, uh, Baron, is... It's almost an institutionalized terror. You know, it's, it's part of the system because he's made it part of the governmental structure. The government, you yeah. know, op- opens to him and he's institutionalized bringing children to him. You know, it's almost even yeah. creepier in that way. Well, the thing is, he probably wanted to, to be someone in the world, to, to be mm. a lord, you know, to rule over people. Whereas Wild doesn't even care. You know, he's got his army of, losers and uh, he just goes around terrorizing poor people and killing and he's left alone like that but uh, yeah I mean if Zod wanted he could be a, a king, an emperor you know, it's uh, this kind of stuff mm-hmm. they're all content to get what they can but uh, yeah the power they have is in any case I mean pretty much always used for evil right out what level well the uh, Black Dog Knights finished their work there and quickly catch up to the Falcons and they're, they're bearing these people's uh, torsos and limbs as, you know, trophies on their spears. Uh, and what's interesting is judo actually recognizes them from afar and, and knows that it's the black dog knights and what they're capable of as criminals, former criminals yeah. turned knights. All of the members of the Falcon look pissed at, at this, you know? Oh yeah. Gas their guy, reaction guys, to it. Yeah. They're all enraged, outraged, I would say by, uh, by this. Right. Um, I don't have a lot of page for page comments on, on a lot of the um, the individual action scenes in this section as they as the well, battle continues on 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 horseback etc. Things like that. Well, but, I like that uh, when there is a bridge, you know, and uh, they are too close, you know, behind them. Gus decides to stay behind to buy some time. You know, I think it's a pretty awesome throwback to his first mission with the band of the Falcon, mm-hmm. and I love how. Casca is worried for him, you know, and uh, he tries to, re- to what say, reconfort her with, you know, Butchitting her about how he's learned a lesson or whatever. Yeah, that whole thing is pretty neat. And I also like that Casca's uh, worry doesn't escape judo. You see him looking back. It's very, you know, subtle, but you see it. And, of course, Griffiths, you know, as well. It's yeah. uh, made more obvious. And, and, of course, you know, uh, Pippin stays by uh, Gus, which is pretty badass because I love yeah. Pippin. <laughs> that is that is that is other than Griffith's notice that was the other thing I had written down was the tag team between Pippin and Guts you know it's nice and again it's similar to kind of like almost fan service for the final you know play yeah. out of Falcons you know seeing these guys fight you know you, you know it's like, it's incredible because it's uh it's also what I had written 
I'd written is so cool that it almost feels like fan service, even though yeah. it's actually the, f- the first and only time we see them fight side by side. So, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like, but yeah, it's so fucking cool to the reader that it almost feels like your wish has been granted, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it only feels like that because we're returning to it from retrospect, you know, and to see these characters do these things now, knowing what happens to them and all that, uh, it, we have a new, newfound appreciation for these kind of moments. Well, you know, I, I was already, how to say, I really liked that when I first read it. Volume 11 was really great to me as a, as a reader. I had seen the, you know, the TV series, as you know, and, uh, well, I almost, you know, felt like, oh, well, I'm just going to read the same stuff, nothing <laughs> new. And, uh, I quickly, I mean, just from opening volume one, I was like, what? What? And, uh, and yeah, and this kind of stuff was great. Really great mm-hmm. to read. It's, uh, it's really awesome. Guts, Guts quickly notices that these guys aren't being deterred despite the fact that he's, you know, overpowering the yeah. first few guys in line. And then generally, we've, we've seen this. It's not just a commentary. We've seen what happens in battle when Guts just mows through the opening lines of combat. People usually, you know, the opponents usually, you know, pause or are shocked. Yeah, so they're taken aback, yeah. Right. These guys, we see a close-up of their faces and they're just like, just mad with terror. And obviously yeah, they're driven. Obviously, it's Weld's, you know, who he is and what he's capable of that is driving them forward. Yeah, I, I had actually a, a comment about, you know, the whole terror theme, you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially the impalement, the the fact, you know, they impale people. It, it actually reminds me of uh, the Berserk prototype, you know, where you see uh, the evil guy uh, who is, mm-hmm. was inspired by Vlad Tepes, who is a historical figure on which Dracula was... Uh, Created, and that guy was uh, known for his love of impalement and how that psychologically affected his adversaries. You know, hmm. and I think uh, it's not uh, how to say it's not random that they actually use that. You know, that impaling people on spears and that kind of stuff. It's uh, it's also part of Wild's whole uh, psychological terror aspect. The way he rules his men and and also impresses his enemies. Right. So yeah, I find it interesting that it's. Uh, superposed to that and that's when Wild actually throws a spear with an impaled woman on it right and Guts kind of has a, a pause as he realizes what it is that he just slashed and, and it actually makes him angrier as he finally gets a first slash into Wild goes straight for uh, you know straight for his face and Wild intercepts it with one arm uh, not even drawing his weapon yet just grabs it with one hand uh, oh yeah you know, the- grabs his hands yeah that's pretty you know, it's pretty impressive, and I think it also shows, like, you know, previously we had seen how powerful Gus had become during that year away, you know, uh, how to say, training and stuff, and to see his attack grabbed in media by Wild just like that, you know, it's, uh, I think it's uh, also our first uh, view of what kind of power Wild, you know, has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a taste. Yeah. Um Pippin is able to intervene, uh, getting Gus' sword back, but then Gus realizes that this man isn't normal, and we get this amazing, massive panel, uh, almost drawn in charcoal, it seems. Yeah. Uh, we out looking totally monstrous, totally inhuman, with this massive pupil, you know, and, and just elongated features, you know, just, yeah. and the shade, the shading on it is just monstrous. Yeah. And that's when he realizes he's, uh, an apostle, you know, mm-hmm. feeling, but the- also, yeah, I mean, what's in, we can't just say it's the it's the feeling of encountering an apostle because it's also what he felt around Skull Knight. I think it's just 
encountering some overwhelming power, you know, something that's inhuman, something that's bigger than him. I think that's what he's sensing. The way I've always felt it is that he felt uh, was a feeling of something eldritch, you know, mm. something that's unnatural and uh, the fear that goes with that, you know, like th- that feeling of the small hairs on the back of your head that rise, you know, you feel something's not right. I think uh, I've always, uh, you know, associated that moment with that kind of feeling, you know, the way you know it's something not normal is going on. Well, sure. it's it's also it's like having the 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 bottom pulled out from under you, right? The floor opening up, you know, and thinking something's impossible and having that being faced with the impossible. That kind yeah, of it reminds me. It's not too different from like when Rickert sees Locus, you know, and mm-hmm. he feels he feels that guy is not he's not human. He's not. It's not normal, you know. Right. It's something, and Mule also had that feeling, and I think around all apostles, you, you get this feeling that you know something's not quite right. Mm-hmm. Uh, another characteristic of Weal that I really like is, you know, he the, the the Falcons have this elaborate, you know, plan to cut off their evaders, and they they blow up this bridge. They have archers and everything, but none of this really deters Weald. He actually he's excited by it, you know. He calls yeah. it fun, you know, as they as he sees gunpowder and realizes there's a, a bridge about to explode. And of course, you know, he's not the kind of leader that gives a shit about his men because you know they all fall down to the bottom of the bridge. Yeah, uh, it's it's a successful uh, attack, but you know, Weld is able to uh, get past the bridge. Yeah, I actually like all the kinds of traps uh, the bands of Falcon have set up. I, I think they all, uh, you know, the, the thing is they're all pretty clever too. And uh, it also, like you said, reinforces the fact why is fucking crazy that he just doesn't care. He actually likes it. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. The boss, the, the two aspects of it. Right. And as you know, as the all their, you know, a lot of their comrades have fallen to the bridge. The, his men become, you know, a little <laughs> uh, perplexed with how to proceed. They're <laughs> yeah. obviously outmatched, and they start stop charging and. He has to have a pep talk with him, which involves squishing a guy's brain with his two oh, fingers. Oh, yeah. And you know, I love the face he makes when he scratches his head. He's like, you know, so mm-hmm. what? You know? <laughs> and then, and then, yeah, he just crushes a guy's skull between his fingers. It's, you know. And, and it's actually a- that, that panel of Wildus, he scratches his forehead. It's almost like a, it's almost like the super deformed version of his face. It's yeah, just, it's pretty much. Comical looking. And, uh, there, there are actually several panels like that where mm. it's, uh, it's you know it just pretty much some kind of comic relief you know uh, making fun of the character like he's so much a parody that uh, Muir actually uses it as a, a humorous you know in a humorous way. Right. He gives uh, the pep talk he gives these guys involves that uh, if you if you start think, talking about you know living or dying you'll end up wasting your life and uh, actually I, I think at least I'm, I'm referring to the Dark Horse translation he says. Uh, the problem with grown-ups is that they they think too much about consequences, and uh, yeah. it made me think about what mindset he's in if he refers to them as uh, you know grown-ups or adults in the third person like that. Yeah, I totally agree. I always found that uh, interesting that remark, especially since we know, like from from that you could think he was a kid that became mm-hmm. a grown grown-up, but we we knew he was an old man, so. Yeah, I always find it interesting, but it, it, it is reflective of his, uh, what to say, his state of mind. He's acting like a, not even just a child, you know, like a monk. Sure. <laughs> we may, we, we can have that conversation now, um, about him being revealed as an old man in the end. Uh, you know, I mean, to me, it's, it seems 
I've always thought that it was just he felt his life was wasted, and though and so that when he died or when he was approaching death and clearly made the sacrifice, whatever it happened to be, he wanted to live his life not making any not making his life a waste to take advantage of every moment of excitement like that, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I think to, I think it really makes sense actually that uh, he turns out to be an old man. Because, you know, we know old people, you know, some can get horny, for example, and uh, not be able to, how mm-hmm. to say, satisfy their needs and that kind of stuff. And they often feel regret and they often have a, a very particular state of mind as they get uh, older. And I think, it's uh, yeah, it's fitting. It's fitting that a man like that who decides that, yeah, now he's got his second chance and he's not going to waste it. He's going to enjoy life to the fullest. And right. uh, if that if that means raping and killing everybody, well, so be it. Yeah, it's, it's, you can you can almost see someone, you know, on their deathbed saying, "You know what? I should have done. I should have just said fuck it." You know, they like an anarchic, yeah, an anarchic yeah, pretty much. Life. You know, you often get you know like I don't know your, your wife being a nurse, uh, she must know tales like that of old men who will just you know. Like they'll just cheat themselves for the fun of seeing the nurse, you know, clean it up. That, that kind of stuff. I, I've heard many stories similar to that from nurses. And I think, you know, in a way, people, as they get really old and their mind degenerates, they get, you know, perverse, you know, mm-hmm. in a way. And uh, sure. I think that, that, that fits the kind of <clears throat> or say mindset while displays actually fits that, you know, state of mind. This kind of perversity, you know. Where mm-hmm. nothing is really, nothing is too far, nothing is too outrageous for him. He doesn't care. Everything is a joke. Uh, yeah, he fits that mold. Uh, after the little pep talk he gives his men, and they uh, <laughs> agree to uh, continue on the path uh, to enjoy and excite, or actually, it's enjoy and exciting. Excitement, I think, is the the Japanese for it. I can't remember. Uh, enjoy and exciting, I believe. Enjoy and exciting. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. There's actually an official Berserk a licensed T-shirt with Weald on it. I think they stopped selling it. It was like in the late early 2000s they had that shirt. Yeah, I don't think it was. Uh, I think it was just a few years ago, actually. Just maybe was four really? years ago. Yeah, mm. four years ago, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, anyway, Guts just uh, starts thinking about now that he's having the sensation about being outmatched, about being in in the company of a supernatural. Is this what Zod meant by you know a death that he can't escape? Ah, uh, yeah. But what, I really what like, I like that. What yeah, I like about ahead. this whole what I like about the whole scenario is that you know he's contemplating these things, but he refuses to accept that as the inevitability. You know that he continues to fight on despite despite the fact that he doesn't know. Maybe maybe this is the inevitable end, but you know he's not going to let that stop him. He's going to continue fighting. So yeah. we're already seeing, and and it's no surprise to readers, even if it was a new reader. Uh, to the series that, you know, Gus has that indomitable will, uh, you know, and he's carried, it's carried him through his whole life. So of course, when faced with supernatural, he doesn't stand down like a lot of the other humans. What I like about it is that, uh, you see Gus is really hot says this thing is really eating up uh, at him while mm-hmm. the other don't really understand or realize what, what's going on. And, uh, he sings back, of course, towards Colonel and that said, but, you know, he also hot say, He's trying to make sense of it, and he actually gets to the wrong conclusion. You know, like he wonders if that's what Zod was referring to, and we know that it's definitely not what he was referring to. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I, I like how Mura doesn't have his character know everything, or you know, he the, the character actually tries to make sense, and in that that you know, how to say, 
context, it's logical for him to think like that. Sure. So, their, you know, they don't, the, the, the limited knowledge that he has, he reaches a conclusion even though it's not the correct conclusion. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it reminds me of, uh, Shiruke when she, you know, thought that, uh, the Moonlight Boy might be, you know, uh, <clears throat> an agent or a manifestation of, uh, the mm-hmm. Elf King, you know, King of the Floor Storm. So, yeah, these are kind of stuff that Mura, you know, tends to do and, uh, you, you don't get to see that often. So, I, yeah, I really like that panel for that reason. Also, there's this dramatically, you know, the symbolic shot of Guts on horseback, small as a giant hand, you know, dark hand, reaches yeah. out from, from over him, as if he has no control over this, as if it is an inevitable thing that he can't fight against, kind of being plucked yeah. like a toy by some monstrous thing. Uh, there's a signal being given uh, as that in that same page as, you know, boulders come falling down uh, on top of them. So the, the Falcons have a, a variety of traps, as we talked about before, yeah. to stop their they're, invaders. They're but, pretty cool, too. I really like that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it doesn't stop well. He's actually excited about it. You know? Oh, yeah. He likes Talks the about- noise. He likes the noise of the skulls being crushed. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's flame. I'd actually forgotten about that. And there's this, this awesome way that you know, Weald dis- dispels the flame. I-, I can't tell quite what he's doing, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wait about when he punches a boulder, man. Oh, I, 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 I was going to say it. Uh, yeah. yeah when he uppercuts uh, the boulder, that, sure. That was the inspiration for the end of Resident Evil 5, you know? <laughs> I, don't, I haven't seen that. Does that happen in Resident Evil 5? Well, you know, uh, Chris Redfield actually punches a boulder, you know, <laughs> to, to get it to move. It's not exactly the same way, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, he does punch a boulder. Does he say big pinch before he punches it? <laughs> no, I don't think he says anything. And he okay. doesn't explode it in a single punch either, but yeah. Okay. That's a QTE, I would guess, right? Yeah, exactly. Quick time event? Okay. Of course. Uh, and after, you know, Weald emerges from the flames in this very dramatic fashion, you know, Judo wonders if this guy's a monster. You know, how could you not already be thinking that at this point? But that's yeah. when he reaches, reaches, begins thinking that things are out of the ordinary. What's, what's neat about is that throughout all these things, Guts and Weald haven't even traded blows yet. You know, this is an extended sequence here. Uh, and I know we're going about it rather slowly. I think we're only three episodes in or so, but uh, just to, it just shows to show that that you know this guy is not going to stop, and, and they're eventually going to come to blows. And what's that going to be like? It kind of yeah, raises attention, and it also weeds out uh, a lot of his men, but that mm-hmm. doesn't really stop him or stop them. And actually, like like you said, the the you know moment when he let's say braces himself against the flames. There's another shot of his eyes, you know, glowing with the fire that I think is really. Really pretty cool. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Uh, and the, the next trap that awaits them is the, on horseback, there's a bunch of archers led by, you know, Carcass who, uh, has his big moment to, you know, lead the troops, <laughs> has this, this proud look on his face as he's about to issue the order to, you know, advance, you know, and, uh, they, they run without him even before he can <laughs> yeah. get the, and he wants them to start over and, and he do it over. Funny little moment. Mira's taking time for comic relief despite all this, yeah. uh, Things happening. And it's then that uh, Guts approaches Weld on horseback yeah. and they actually come to blows. But what's interesting is that uh, Guts says something about how uh, he's not sure what, you know, Weld is, what, he, what kind of creature he is. And there's this dramatic shot of uh, Weld's eyes looking inhuman. Yeah, you know, I, I think, I think uh, Guts really, I mean, I think he knows, you know, 
that he's a monster and you know, yeah, that's, yeah, he that's, calls that's him a monster. I, that's what I like about it is that he doesn't Gus doesn't fuck around, you know. Like he he knows he's the only one who can face him, so he mm-hmm. goes straight to business and uh, and yeah, I like that the what says the opposition of that speech with just the two monstrous eyes on the black background. You know, it's very mm-hmm. dramatic. It's actually we haven't seen his eyes quite like that at this point. Uh, it actually reminds me of the Behirid Apostle, the, the kind of shot we get from him in Volume 19 and, and yeah. things like that. Volume 18. Obviously, it's not an allusion to that. It's merely how Miro chooses to draw apostles, but through the focusing on the inhuman aspects of their pupils and things like that. Uh, the reason I mentioned that Guts saying, uh, "I'm not sure what kind of creature you are," but is that Wild catches up on uh, Wild realizes that. Guts seems to know something about apostles, or maybe he's encountered one before. And then he concludes that this is the one that Zod had talked about, that there was, yeah. you know, a strong one among the Falcons. I, I like how he disparages Zod when he talks about him, too. He's a guy who really respects nothing. Oh, what does he say? Oh, uh, oh, wow, yeah, yeah. In the Dark Horse, he calls him the stupid cow, Zod. Yeah, pretty much. He makes a car reference. I, I wouldn't know uh, the exact Japanese thing off the top That's of fine. my head. But yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's definitely not respectful, which is yeah. funny considering how he ends up, but uh, it goes to show that the guy really had no respect for, for anyone. Actually, not even the god end, I, I will, will get to see. Yeah, of course. You know, it made, it made me think the, the line that he and Zod had had a conversation about guts and the Falcons before. It makes you wonder, what was the circumstance of that conversation? Why would Zod even bother? Were they at a bar together? Was there a, a possible congregation where they have like, Weekly meetup. So, like, how does that work exactly? You know, what's the the method of that conversation? Well, you know, it's possible they met on the battlefield. You know, if Zod was fighting for Tudor and uh, just he came across Wild, you know, and uh, yeah, maybe yeah. I would I would imagine Wild just backed off because yeah, I don't know. Actually, it's a it's a good question, and we yeah, we'll, we'll never get know, the answer. But uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe another flashback. A three-part flashback where Zod and Wild had a conversation. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, what I like is interesting is Wild's weapon. You know, it's not a sword, it's not a club or a mace oh, yeah. or a spear. It's just a, it's just a big log. It's a tree limb. It's like, it's like he doesn't even take it seriously. It's like he doesn't take the combat like this seriously. He's not, he's not going to fully engage in the kind of combat everyone else is. He's, it's all, it's also almost like a kid. Like a kid has a stick. You know, picks up a stick as his sword. Yeah, and it also goes, I mean, Guts actually uh, remarks on that later on, a little bit after that, but the the fact, Wild doesn't actually, he's not skilled, you know, he doesn't Mm -hmm. have skill, he's just fighting because he has super strength and uh, inhuman reflexes, but other than that, he's not a skilled fighter or anything like that, so, you know, in the same way, he just doesn't, he doesn't even use a weapon, any log will do. Right. So I think it fits the character. While everyone's engaging, actually, I'd missed this one uh, additional uh, trap that the Falcons had laid was a series of logs that they, you know, let oh, loose yeah. down a down a hill and it crushes everyone. So they came fully prepared for this kind of stuff. You know, a series we've seen like four or five things, pretty impressive. Uh, anyway, um, as they're in combat, you know, and they're taking Griffith further away, you know, we get the shot of Griffith looking at the the kind of the yeah. front lines and, and hearing. The combat from a distance and he has this longing look in his eyes, you know. He was a, he was a frontline commander, you know. He was not the kind of guy to lead from the back of the ranks or anything like that. He fought alongside his men, so he's probably setting in for him that he can't, 
or is not part of that action anymore, you know. Yeah. But that's well, how I'm I took sure. that anyway. What uh, what look are you you know uh, referring to? The one in the lower right panel on page uh, sixty eight. I don't know what page it is, but uh, right after the logs are dispersed, there's a picture of guts on a stretcher or Griffith on a stretcher, and you just see this the light in his eye. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, and Casca uh, looks down at him. Actually, yep. I always thought uh, she had a look of pity, you know. Oh, sure. She looked down at him, and uh, I find that interesting. And in the same way. Before that, when you see guts, uh, that's what the one I was referring to a couple of pages before. When you see guts and wild start a challenging blows, you mm-hmm. see Griffiths look at the scene with a very focused look in his eye. And I, I thought, you know, that was interesting also because the two go together. Griffiths is very intent and he would probably like to be doing something. But sure. at the same time, he can't. And yeah, he has to be taken away. And it's a kind of look and the fact Casca looks down at, uh, on him. Uh, with pity, you know, that also participates to his, you know, the way his mindset will evolve towards sacrificing, I think. I didn't necessarily read her look as pity, more as she's she's able to read what he's thinking, you know. She's empathizing with what yeah. he's able to, he's feeling in this. She, she knows what is going through his head. And then it's 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 sad. And I guess maybe pity is appropriate, but... Yeah, well, maybe it's not like 100% pity, but yeah, I think... There's definitely some of that, you know. She feels bad for him, and uh, yeah. So the way Guts and Weald are fighting actually is reminiscent of when he was fighting Boscone uh, and Doldry. Is this this whirlwind of of you know blows coming so quickly? But obviously, it's a little it's more intense than that uh, because this is an apostle. Yeah, but uh, Guts, you already commented that Guts has is able to read. Uh, Wild's capabilities, and he's he's fighting by reflex. He's not even fully engaging in the fight, really, you know. But uh, Gus finds an opening, uh, goes right for his face, but uh, Wild catches it with his teeth, and then yeah. dismounts Guts. But uh, it's actually telling that you know Wild 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 did that as kind of a kind of like, oh, you thought you could get me? Well, here goes your horse. But Gus yeah. is able to actually pull one on him at the same time, so he's able to actually. Counter the counter move in that point. Yeah. So it probably takes Wild by surprise as well. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, the look of glee on his face as he bites the sword down, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, you have oh, to give yeah. it to him. It's, uh, it really goes to show what kind of crazy character is. And, uh, yeah, punching the horse, you know, it's, the thing I, I love about that is, uh, the way it's really, it's, it always one ups. This fight is always, it's like a series of one ups when guts, knows Wild is fast and strong but has no techniques so he manages to get through and slash his face but mm-hmm. Wild bites it down punches Gus' horse then Gus jumps and kicks him in the face and then you know they all fall back together that kind of stuff it's very it's a very dynamic and the, the stakes keep being raised in that fight so oh, yeah. and I, it, I think it, it makes that, it very effective yeah, I mean that's 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 the pace of this whole volume, and it, it only gets more so like that as he as he you know becomes fully engaged in the combat and transforms. The pace of the whole thing is fascinating because guts yeah. is so vulnerable here because he knows so little about fighting opponents like these. You know, again, yeah. we've we've, told, we've said he's fought Zod before, but other than, other than Volume Five, he's never been so vulnerable against yeah. an Apostle before. And uh, throughout that fight, I also like that. You see actually Casca uh, continuously worrying about him and when, you know, he has a horse, he's killed and that kind of stuff, she finally starts realizing herself that uh, Wild is not completely human, you know. She has uh, right. that, you know, line where she realizes 
it's you know inhuman and he's not you know normal right <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happens with Casca in the background in here uh, and, and we'll, we'll get to those panels but there's there's, some, there's development happening between herself and Guts and, and Griffith just between panels between action sequences yeah uh, even though Griffith is only able to silently convey things it's it's all implicit stuff I also like the fact that uh, when uh, Gus and Wilder are fighting, uh, Wilder actually directly references the Eclipse. You know, mm, yeah. He says he, he says you know like he's so excited he he just can't wait for it. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that he you know he made a comment about you know uh, about it before and that kind of stuff. But yeah, here it's a direct reference. A direct, it's maybe the first time the word is used in the story. You know, so I, I thought I like, so. I thought yeah. so as well, but actually it's, it's Skull Knight in Volume 9. I actually went back and checked on that because I had the exact same question. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Wales' attitude changes, and he's, again, I keep using the term fully engaged because before he was, again, like he says, it was, a, it was a light snack he was going to do, but now he's, you know, he's not going to wait for the main course. He's going to go for it right now. And he's, he's, he's already yeah. thinking about transforming, uh, you know, and, and, and taking yeah. care of Griffith now. Um, Griffith tries to grab his sword now, you know, thinking about, actually, it's actually a funny panel. I actually wondered about this. You know, the, the two guards, you know, down in a hole say that they'll be safe here and the enemy won't find us. And, and Griffith almost looks skeptical about that. And, and at that point goes for his sword, you know, kind of yeah, to, to defend, defend himself, you know. And I think he just, you know, I mean, generally speaking, he just disapproves of that kind of stuff. Like, you know. Oh, right we are hiding, well. You know. We are well hidden here. So, and yeah, it's a pretty, you know, like I means his look, you know, for the sword, putting his hand, and you see the way the hand just won't hold on to it, and then the black background, you know, it's a it's a very touching thing. And again, I think it uh, reinforces the seriousness of his state and the fact yeah. it's permanent and the psychological effect it must uh, be having on him. Yeah, it's it's one of those key moments for him, and we'll get more of these as it goes on between now and Volume Twelve. There's these there's a, there's a, a series of these black background moments where it's yeah. intently focused on his failure or his the, the failures of his physical body or uh, how far his his body is degraded, and he, it's setting in the reality for the future is setting in, and of course it's all done as a defense against whenever he's given the choice, you know, to. To rest within the wreckage of this this body and have that be his life, or become a member of the God Hand, you know, it's it's all yeah. just have weighted against his actual decision. So, yeah. Anyway, um, it's fitting that the Falcons actually take care of the Black Knight Dog Knight so easily. Uh, there's this great panel with Casca telling them that the enemy's in a rout, and so they're leading them away. Yeah, and she they know. Event. Right, I, think she, I love. She was- she looks pretty badass, you know, in that show. Oh, yeah, I absolutely love that. There's actually a couple of shots similar to this one strewn throughout this section of the series. And we see another one, I think it's in, uh, later on. But, yeah, yeah, I, I do love the posing of it. Um, and it, like I said, it's fitting because the Falcons were first rate. And these guys really only had Weald to back them up and, and to drive them forward. You know, they weren't doing anything special about them. I, I think it's emphasized here. Yeah. When uh, you skip the fact that Weald can, you know, make Guts slide back like five meters with a single hit, you know, yeah, at the beginning yeah. of that episode. 
Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting. Uh, I like the way that's drawn as well. There's the the shoe marks, uh, his guts. <laughs> Slowly realizes the power of this guy, but actually, it's it's more fully reinforced by what happens next when Wow just puts his hand on a tree and just pinches it. Yeah, you know, pulls it apart. You know, and I, I love the way this is drawn. It's it's almost like hyper realistic the way the way it's it, what, what it's happening because he has a, a bark and everything. Yeah. Exactly, the way it snaps into twigs like that. It's like you had to think like, wow, is that what would happen to a tree? It's just like, it's just, it's just a crazy looking thing that you wouldn't normally see like that, you know? It's interesting yeah. and he punches and, it like that. And the fact, you know, he does it so that the tree will fall in a particular direction, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, just that Mira thought about that, you know, instead of having just, you know, while just, you know, I mean, I don't know, just smash the tree and, you know. Yeah, he could have just punched it. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh he does it so that it would fall in a in a specific direction and I I find it, you know, pretty you know, pretty interesting again. Like you said, it's a hyper realistic way to do things. It's a it's 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 more memorable show of force for what apostles are capable of. You know, something like that. You just, you just imagine what they would have been like on the battlefield, you know, using that kind of power. Yeah. It would have been interesting to see. And what's great is that yeah, he just he kills his own men. Right. Right. Um, and of course he uses, he chooses this time that, um, to transform. And I love the way, it, uh, it transitions too. We see a little bit by little by little as he, as he's growing, uh, different focuses on different aspects of him as the fog emerges and kind of a swirling pattern around him. And we see the guts and everyone is just, you know, in terror at this massive yeah. form, this huge mouth. The armor, you know, snapping off. Mm-hmm. You know, all that stuff. Evan Griffiths is, uh, you know, impressed. I like that Guts, you know, says he's, it's exactly what he expected, you know, the monster. And, you know, and again, it's, it's almost like Zod prepared him for this. You know, his, his encounter with Zod made him stronger for this because he knew that things like this existed in the world, you know. Yeah. He was prepared for an inhuman like this. But even though Guts expected it to be like that, He's still, you know, that that look on his face. You can tell mm. he's scared, you know, of the, of the beast, you know. Right, yeah. And he gets hit by the very first, you know, attack, which is, you know, him pulling up an entire tree with one arm and swinging yeah. it, you know, using his body. And- <laughs> Guts actually, it looks like Guts is it. I can't tell if he gets hit full on or if he had jumped and it hit his feet. But either way, he gets flung into the trees. Yeah, uh, I, I think he actually tries to, how to say, I think he tries to, to dodge, but it's, it's not, you know... Yeah, the panel look, makes it look like he's just you know static. So right. What's uh, sure is that? Some... Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Now I was gonna also say that uh, when he, he appears, people actually you know a few of them, including Carcass, think uh, it's Zod actually. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that. That's that's interesting because you know Pippin even says no, it's not him, or yeah. thinks, thinks it rather. <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting. Even Casca thinks it, and we have a little <laughs> flashback. In her head to what Zod looked yeah. at the time, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's another one, you know, <laughs> crazy, right? Scene. Yeah, and it must make them think like you know, if there's more than one in the world, and what world is this, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> as they begin to realize the true nature of things. And um, uh, yeah, and and there's uh, then there's Griffiths who actually tries to move, you know, like he I don't know makes himself fall, uh, you know, forward, and uh, you see he's trying to he's calling Gut's name, so. You know, oh. even he's worried for guts. Yeah, he just said, 
I know. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to say in uh, in English, but it's a, uh, no, something like that. Yeah, he's trying the, to. If I had seen the Japanese, I would have been able to recognize it. But the way it's done in Dark Horse, it just says TSS. But yeah, you're right. You're probably it's probably. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, they didn't think that through because I guess that's not clear to the English readers. Right. Right. It's putting forward and saying, uh, just fell again. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Dark Horse. What I like about this is Casca immediately charges out there, despite despite just seeing this new monster emerge. You know, she doesn't hesitate to go to gut side or to try yeah. to get the gut side to charge out there, uh, which of course draws the attention of Wild. Uh, and then the Falcons try to intervene. Despite all this, they you know, they very valiantly try to uh, attack him with arrows, but of course it doesn't work. I like yeah. the shots of Wild. Uh, his face is is quite a bit different in these shots, and the, they have these kind of like focus shots. We see it a couple times, as you can see the kind of the apostle features around his eyes and his face. It's just a small yeah. thing, but I just like that Mira thought through his character design enough to show that he looks different in these small little panels. Yeah, you know, I think he actually designs uh, apostle form at the same time as he does the human form. You know, like he doesn't <clears> just draw a guy and then. Think, oh, well, what could he become? Hmm, maybe, hmm, maybe something like that. So, you know, like, very obviously, I think he had thought, you know, the whole thing through, and, you know, that's also why, uh, why he's, uh, a bit monkey-like, because he transformed into that, that beast, you know, when he's, uh, right. transformed. And, you know, the Casca coming gets well attention. Which then uh, the Falcons try to stave him off by shooting arrows at him, which of course doesn't work. But I like that we get to see Gaston and Judo, you know, right there trying to defend Casca, despite the fact that it's futile. Uh, and then that, you know, angers Wild. Uh, similar to Zod, uh, arrows, all they really do is piss off apostles. Don't even bother. Yeah. And so he you know, just fully jumps on them uh, with a, you know, massive tree in his hand and just goes to town with, you know, several, you know, just shots of just pure chaos as yeah. he's using his full form and features to his is the most like you know throwing horses into his mouth and eating chewing up horses right in front yeah. of them i like the the body parts that fall you know from the mouth yeah. just like wasted pieces i think those those you know shots are really gorgeous and the you know of him rampaging they show you know his form is truly monstrous actually you know he's one of the one of my favorite apostle designs i think one of the three eyes the giant mouth it's really you know Mm-hmm. It's really gross, and there's that, that shot of him darkened, where he's eating the horse and and a guy as well together. You know, right? I love the lighting. Yeah, you can't even see his face, but the eye is in full for features. Yeah, you know? it really like, looks like uh, yeah, just a fucking monster. Uh, several of the shots, actually, now that I think about it, are like that, where you can't really see the the fo- the, the form of the actual you know Wild himself, but just his apostle eyes and mouth and things like yeah. that. It just accentuates how monstrous it looks, like we said. Uh, and it forces the guys to retreat because it's not even a battle anymore, as Judo says. So they're trying to figure out how to, uh, uh, what the next move should be if there's a rampaging monster that can tear down trees. Uh, mm-hmm. Casca tries to get to guts, but, uh, he can't get up. Uh, well. Yeah. And Griffiths, Griffiths, uh, looks at that, you know, as he's being taken to safety, he looks at them, at the two of them. So there's a shot of him, you know, turning uh-huh. in that direction. Yeah, there's a lot of these shots where, uh, Griffith's able to, uh, you can see his concern for Guts and Casca here. You know, the others are plotting their retreat, but he keeps his eyes fixed on them and he looks, looks, yeah. looks concerned. It happens a couple times, actually. Yeah. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And she looks, uh, how to say, she looks in a frenzy, you know, as she's slapping his face, you know, it's really, you can tell emotionally it's being very hard for her. Mm-hmm. She, yeah, what she says of him is that it actually very moving, that he, he, he can't die here, he can't die to this monster because he was going to take her with him when, when they go. Yeah. She's already thinking about the future or at least emphasizing that in this moment about, you know, their future together. Yeah, crying and everything. Right. What I like is that, you know, Guts is knocked out, but he actually references it later on. So, you know, part of him was awake or at least awake enough to remember that moment. So yeah, he, he must have been yeah. just, I don't know, groggy or something like that. Dazed, yeah, sure. Uh, and, you know, Wild says that, you know, sorry for what, keeping you waiting, you know, as he grabs her and he uh, demoralizes her before you know, stripping her armor off, uh, introduces her to his tongue. All, yeah. all the visuals here are, again, just, you know, full of terror. The way the mouth, the tongue is, is shown yeah. from the, from the inside of his mouth as the saliva drips down and fog yeah. emerges from his mouth, all that stuff. And Griffiths actually even tries to go, you know, help her, you know, you can see him straining, mm-hmm. all, all that stuff. It's very, you know, and she looks, you know, she also looks, how to say, scared, I guess, really scared, you know, by the thing and by the guy himself. It's actually real. You know, I'd never, I'd, I'd noticed these panels, of course, but I'd never really focused on them before. This, the, the thing that's happening with Griffith is really interesting. Um, and, and not just because, uh, I guess what it is, what it is that's drawing my interest is that he feels powerless and that he want he wants to be able to help her now. You know, I've, yeah. I've seen a lot of readers and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to lecture here, but I, I've seen this happen a lot where people think that once Griffith was imprisoned, he was focusing his hatred on guts for making this happen. And that was it. Clearly there's no way it's just that <laughs> he's a nuanced character. He's feeling lots of things. He wants to protect his friends. He cares about his friends, you know, facing these overwhelming odds with him being able to do nothing about it. You know, look at the expression on his face. It's very clear. You know, he wants yeah, to be out uh, there with sword in hand, you know? And uh, I think even if we stick to guts, I mean, it's a bit of a thing, but even if we stick to his feelings for guts, he, he blamed him while he was in jail, but the moment he actually saw Guts coming to his rescue, his feelings were much more, how to say, mixed, you know. Right. And uh, I think even until the very end, they were very mixed. I mean, when, sure. when he got, you know, they grabbed each other and, you know, Guts you know, was falling from the, the hand during the eclipse, everything. Until the very end, it was, you know, that's why the whole thing had to be so complicated and so convoluted. Because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a complicated thing to get somebody to give up what's most precious to him. Sure. I, I guess I just think that readers try to simplify that, which, of course, it, which, is, yeah. which is, is annoying to me because there's a lot of nuance and detail to these characters throughout these scenes, even before we get to the eclipse. There yeah, is, I, Mir is emphasizing the conflicting emotions. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, in the same way that as Griffiths is looking at Guts and Casca, you know, he, we don't actually get to know, but he's worried for them, but he might also be jealous of the relationships they now have, you know? Right. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it works on multiple le- levels, you know? It's not uh, just a one or one thing or, you know, zero and one or black and white. It's, uh, it's much more complex than that. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, right is, uh, I just feel, honestly, I feel awkward focusing on details like this, so I'm kind of just glossing over them. Uh, but right as Wild is getting down to business, let's say, uh, Gus is yeah, able well, to... Yeah, well, I can say it. He's trying to rape Casca with a really gross dick, you know? <laughs> because he's because he's a monster and he's focused on, you know, uh, let's say, I guess, raping and that kind of stuff. He's a really he's a prototypical person in that regard. 
And so as, as he's about to do that, uh, Guts just slices his strong off. Right, right. And I love how it falls to the ground like that and is com- fully separated. And it was actually a comical moment for Weald. You know, it gets his, uh, and he yeah. says, not my, and then we have like, I mean, I've always told them as like the PlayStation symbols, you know, on the controller, the, the circle and the X and the triangle kind of thing. Yeah. As it's being censored out. But that, that's actually, of course, in the original one as well. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I think it's just a way for Mira to, to be humorous. And yeah. even he's a face, he's actually on the panel where you see the thing fly off. You see Wire's face. Yeah. It's just, it's, uh, it's truly comical. Even the, the apostle thing, you know, like <laughs> the big eye has a, like a little, you yeah. know, tear, you know, tear drop, or I don't sweat drop, you know, on the side, you know. Oh, the, man. the mouse looks, you know, it's really, it's just, uh, it's a comical thing, even though it's a very, you know, uh, serious moment, I guess. And uh, I, I've said so before, but I, I've always thought that this moment, you know, and the, the way you know, Guts actually saves the day and everything is a is a way to mirror to, let's say, to make it even more horrible when during the eclipse, no one actually saves the day, you know. Right. Uh, because, you know, we, we've often seen, you know, we've seen, not often, but we have seen Casca being almost raped before in danger of being, you know, sexually, you know, assaulted. And there's always been, uh, let's say a savior. She's always managed to get through, to get off and everything like that. And then just, you know, two volumes from this, why it's a big time where it's just, you know, there's no savior and nothing can be escaped. So I think it actually works very well, you know, in that regard. It's a serious moment. It's dangerous, but then bam, guts, you know, wakes up, you know, he saves the day and, you know, it's even, there's even a little joke, but um, it's only a premise to what's to come. <clears throat> I, I, I'm surprised we haven't mentioned it yet because it's, it's generally how I always put Volume 11 in the context of the rest of the series, particularly with the Eclipse coming up. But I always like to think of this as uh, it's putting the power of an apostle in context whenever an, an army of them arrives. Uh, I, I've often said that in that we're seeing Guts face off against just one apostle. So yeah. then what's the sensation – or the expectation for success when an entire, you know, huge numbers of them just swarm around them and then transform. There's no, there's no escape, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, what I like about Guts uh, is it's the typical Guts attitude, the reinforcement of that he's in control despite the overwhelming odds. You know, saying I like how he tells Casca that you know, t- take out a don't don't get in my view. You'll distract me with like that and you know, looking like that because their clothes are off. So still acting tough. Despite all this, yeah. Uh, and also, you know, this is also for Weald. It's become this become serious. This guy actually, you know, wounded him uh, in, in an embarrassing way. You know, when he thought he had control of the battle. Yeah. And so it ups the stakes for everyone. You know, I also like what he says. Just uh, as he just after he saves her, when he says, you know, that you know she hit him pretty hard. You know that kind of stuff. You know. Mm-hmm. He's just, you know, I mean, the whole thing, you can tell he's trying to be easygoing also for her sake, you know, and uh, pretty much just, you know, that reinforces the fact he wants to fight him one on one, just no distraction, you know, and right. uh, <clears throat> that's the kind of guy he is, even though the odds are against him, you know, he's still, you know, he thinks he can do it. And also, uh, as as the men around Griffith are saying that it's a you know it's an inconceivable fight, you know he, he's crazy for taking them on. There's this look on Griffith's face, you know, there's this this confidence on his face that he knows his friend can take care of it, or at least has a chance to take care of yeah. it. Yeah. 
and the final you know shot of the episode with guts back and you see the right yeah. enormous shape of wild you know he's even he looks even you know more scary with the three huge eyes and the mouth open with the tongue you know you know sliced tongue you know it's a she looks really you know it's beautiful yeah it is. so he's so ugly um i've mentioned this a couple times in recent volumes but um the sensation Guts has when he, he hears this roar from Weil, he, he talks about this. He comments on, on the opening page of this episode that he feels it deep inside him. This, this, the, the war, the cry of this, you know, yeah. this beast is about to blow me away is what he says. Yeah. We, actually, we actually see his body reacting to this, you know, and I actually wondered if he's, if it's, yeah, it is. His, his hands are shaking as he's gripping the sword. He's, he's being paralyzed yeah. by the sensation of this overwhelming force. Not to mention that we see actually like uh, the wave of the wind, you know, that hits him back mm-hmm. just from there's a the movement of the air, you know, so it's, uh, it, it actually reminds me of the sea god, you yep. know, when the thing rolled and it just, you know, moves the air back like that. It's that kind of power, you know. Right. Uh, Gus is able to get in a several hits. Uh, it's interesting. He's actually more successful against him now that he's more focused uh, than he was when he's a human. I wondered if it was because he's just is a much more lumbering figure. You know, he probably has a speed advantage on this thing. But also, Gus is more determined. You know, the stakes have been raised for him when the cask has been. You know, assaulted. Yeah, and I think he also now now he also knows uh, what he's capable of. You know, mm-hmm. like knowing what your enemy can do. Uh, allows you to yeah to move in between spots you know dodge hit back that kind of stuff he's adapting to the size of his opponents and uh, you know how to say yeah adapting to win sure yeah. uh, when guts rose up against Wild earlier a couple pages back you know Carcass was saying that like he was calling him an idiot for doing so and and now that guts actually has him down on the ground you know caused him to fall you know carcass says looks like he can do it the idiot you know <laughs> yeah. still calling him an idiot even though he's su- successful uh and everyone's looking positive about this as guts you know yeah. leans in for the what he thought even, would be even griffiths is uh he's um, so smiling you know right yeah, as as I've said before, it looks like Guts has the upper hand for a moment as he, you know, starts him, you know, disemboweling him or attempting to, and then Wild's feet grab around him, you know, clap around him, and then he yeah. throws him into the air. So it again, it emphasizes that the pace of this battle constantly changes. You know, one has the upper hand, the other one has the upper hand. You know, it's a back and forth. Uh, but also now that he's transformed, you know, every blow is serious business. You know, uh, yeah. He just throws him, you know. I like how he does things. Like he just, you know, one clap, guts is, you know, knocked out a bit. Then he grabs him and just throws him at the trees. It's just, you know, I don't know. He's not really fighting like a warrior, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not something Zod would do. He's just, you know, doing it, you know, randomly like a big brute, like a big monster. Right. He actually has names for all these attacks. Wild stomp, wild backfist, you know, as he's, yeah. uh, it's almost like a fighting game kind of move. Yeah. So it's really, you know what it is? It's like a kid playing at, you know, combat or something like that. Pretty much, yeah. But yeah, you still see the roar, you know, from the the big beast. And uh, mm-hmm. that's, uh, how to say, an interesting, you know, comparison, parallel between his mentality that's, you know, yeah. childish in a way and uh, the monstrous aspects of it. Right. Uh, he actually, Wild wonders if he'd actually killed him with that last hit, you know, based on the impact of it. And, uh, Griffith looks very concerned. He actually bites down so hard he starts drawing blood from his mouth. 
being so, I guess, frustrated that he can't go out there himself. Also concerned for his friend, obviously. Yeah, and you see, you also see Casca, who's despite being, you know, naked and uh, how to say, she, it looks like to me she's, you know, refraining herself from running again to to guts, you know. Right. And actually, uh, you know, it's almost like Guts passes out or, you know, for a moment uh, becomes unconscious yeah. and enough to have a small flashback about uh, why he's fighting, why he's doing all this training. You know, it's like he uh, he, he actually thinks about Zod uh, during this, this scene, it's him and Erica during the waterfall. Yeah. We saw a little bit of this in volume uh, 10 uh, earlier uh, about his training uh, during a year away. And he talks about how. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of interpreting because we don't actually see, we don't actually, his full thoughts aren't revealed. But it seems to me that his encounter with Zod made him realize that there were there were more powerful opponents out there, and that he's basically training for moments like that or moments when he won't feel outclassed or outmatched. And then yeah. he actually says, he implies that he wants to have a rematch with Zod, basically to test his own skill, probably. Yeah, pretty much. When she she's questioning, you know, uh, questioning whether. Uh, he would win or lose, mm-hmm. and he doesn't know, but you can tell he wants to, to see. <clears throat> right. And he actually comes to right as uh, Weald comes and manages to get a good strike in. Uh, yeah, but, slashes his eye right in the middle. Right. And uh, he, he sees actually, which the key moment here is that Gut sees the hand regenerate uh, in action. So he, he says that, you know, he gets it now. And so uh, he goes in for a. Uh, he thinks to himself. He doesn't. He, he wonders to himself. How, what do I do? What do I have to do to win? Well, uh, yeah. I think there's the two things. Is that he sees that slashing the eye is actually very effective. That it mm. really hurts him. But then he sees that slashing the hand, you know, mm. just doesn't work. work. Sure. And yeah. so yeah, he he guesses that he has to strike a vital point. Right. Casca uh, attempts to intervene again, but Judo grabs her and tells her that you know he he's determined that look in his eyes he, st- he still has a chance to to take him out. Yeah. This this moment though with Casca is another thing I wanted to focus on this volume, and she says um, it's okay to, it's okay to run away sometimes. Why does he always have to fight? Um, it made me wonder about you know her her state of mind. You know she knows the truth of it. She she knows why guts does these things, but also she's conflicted. And I don't know. It made me think about if she's thinking more about gut safety or, um, and I'll, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of jumping all over what I'm trying to say, but well, you know, I don't know if I can help you focus, but the thing is, you know, I think this also shows a difference in mentality and it's, I think that played into their original uh, <clears throat> disagreements, the way they were always fighting. That guts is a kind of guy that just, he doesn't back off, you know? Like, he didn't back off. When Griffiths first beat him, he tried a rematch. He doesn't back off. And, uh, and yeah, that's just not, you know, I, I think that's Cas- something Casca has trouble understanding. Like, even you doing, when you are outmatched and it's a fight to the death, then why, why not run? Why stay? Why fight? And it's, uh, you know, it's a difference. I think it's also a difference between men and women in a way. Mm-hmm. So I can understand why she would have trouble accepting it. But at the same time, like you said, she knows he is and she knows why he has to do it and uh and in any case if he wasn't fighting then they would all be killed by wires anyway so yeah that's exactly i guess what i was failing to to articulate was 
it's in their best interest that he continues fighting, but she's concerned for his safety. Yeah. So she's, she doesn't care about that in this moment, you know. Well, she you know, I, I think from the very, from the very point, uh, the fight starts, you know, she, you know, we see her as a commander. She's in control. She's fighting. She's think when you see Guts start getting hurt, she immediately loses focus. You know, mm-hmm. she, she's not a commander anymore. She's not thinking in a military way. She's thinking as a lover, as a woman who is seeing her guy, you know, in, in a bad shape. Like you, you, we see a bit earlier, Guts comments. He has broken ribs. He's, he's in a bad shape and she's just worried. She's just emotion. She's reacting emotionally and she's worried. And, uh, yeah, <clears throat> that's it. Well, rolling right from that moment of Casca, we, uh, see again, uh, Griffith surveying the land, the battlefield from afar and, and is able to see Casca's, uh, kind of a, to read her emotional state, even though it's across this big distance. And he has his look on his face. Um, yeah, it's a very, you know, how to say, very mournful. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I think he can, uh, he, he comprehends uh, what her feelings for guts are. Yeah, yeah, and one of many times, but kind of. Yeah. It's a very solid interpretation of it. I don't know. There's something about this panel, the way it's done. I don't know. It's interesting that the speckled effect yeah. makes it makes it seem more. I don't know, like a like a full realization of things. I don't know. Yeah, it's a bit. I would say almost nostalgic, but mm. uh, it's not really that feeling that's being conveyed. But uh, yeah. yeah, blue. You know, as um. As the fight continues, Guts realizes that, you know, he can't take any more hits like this. His, his sword oh, yeah. is cracking, his armor is in, in shambles. Yeah, as he's blocking the blows. And I like, you know, Wild's face. He looks enraged, you know. Mm-hmm. He, he looks completely, I don't know, it's like a wild dog, you know. Yeah. <laughs> face. Um, and this is when Guts chooses to use some tactics uh, to do the finishing blow, or what would have been a fin- the finishing blow. He actually... Um, he makes a decoy, actually makes a series of decoys, uh, one behind a tree and uh, another one out of a suit of armor, from one from a, a black dog knight and one from his armor. Yeah. It's actually interesting because we've seen him use this tactic again uh, with the Count uh, around a column. I think it's in volume three or two maybe. Yeah. Uh, same thing, puts a body behind a column so that it'll draw the attack so then it'll create an opening that way. And, but in this case, it's more complicated because – Guts had actually planned for two levels of yeah. uh, feigning before he because makes his attack. He knew uh, why I wouldn't fall for, for the first one. Right. And even that just barely gets through because Wild gets his hand up before the sword comes, snaps the sword, but yeah. then the, there's still remaining you know, the, the end of the blade or the hilt of the blade is enough to go through his neck. And even though uh, Guts is swatted, you know, Guts... Uh, you know, curls around him, grabs yeah. his knife, and tries to finish him off in the neck, and stabs yeah, him in he, the eye. He gets him in a in a what's a lock around the neck, and he stabs him in the heart. Actually, right. it's pretty. You know, <clears throat> <laughs> the Dark Horse translation of uh, Wild as he's about to pass out. He says, "Woo, bleeding!" <laughs> and he falls, <laughs> falls over. It's pretty funny. You know, yeah, maybe, yeah. It's accurate or not? It's it's it's, it's amusing either way. It's funny. Yeah, he, uh, he says he's bleeding. I'm yeah. not sure. Woo, he's a proper <laughs> thing. Yeah, it's funny. And, and well, it's the, pro- go ahead. It's, it's proper for the character. You know, he's, yeah. he's that kind of guy. Oh, oh fuck! Yeah. <laughs> and like everyone rushes, or Casca rushes to to guts uh, at the end of the fight, um, and uh, starts crying. And guts gives her this cool look with a thumbs up. You know, even though yeah. he's like huddling against a tree. No, that's uh, you know that those pages are so fucking cool. You know, you see when you see uh, Wyatt's body, you know, 
and all the people in the forest, the onlookers, mm-hmm. and the shot, and you see, you know, Casca dropping her sword as she runs, stumbling, you know, crying, seeing guts, and, you know, falling in his arms. It's just, it, all of it is really fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I don't have a lot to say about this scene uh, with Charlotte, other than that we get the full reveal of what Griffith supposedly said to her uh, in the sewers as they were escaping, which is that, that he'll return. Or he will well, come I, I like the fact it cuts, you know, from uh, the end of the fight directly to something completely different. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that, you know, opening page for the, how to say, for the episode is uh, Griffith's breastplate and armor, you know, which also symbolizes what he's not anymore. Right. Mm-mm. Yeah, his actual armor, not the makeshift armor, not the makeshift yeah. helmet. And yeah. the emblem of the Falcons there as well. It's all, also, you know, it's what's what's missing from that page is him, you know. It's just yeah. like it's like his shell. Uh, is all yeah, this, indeed. This yeah, it's a it's a shell of uh, what he used to be, you know. And then mm-hmm. we see, you know, Charlotte worried about Griffith. She's back in in her room. A nice drink to comfort her. You know, they have this little moment between the two of them. And uh, <clears throat> how to say, Anna knows the truth, but she she doesn't want to tell, you know, Charlotte. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, <clears throat> she's you know Charlotte's thinking back, you know, about you know the past, what Griffith said. Of course, we, we get to know actually what he told her in the sewers, and she looks very naive and innocent, and it's, it's a sweet thing, you know, it's almost like, you know, out of a fairy tale, the princess crying for a prince. And then she sees a bird in the sky, but is it really a bird, or is it Zod? Yeah, the flashbacks of, or flash forward to volume 30, or 30 or 29, I guess it is, a uh, similar thing happens, she's in his, her room, and, you know, Zod is just flying overhead, you know, well, except this time Griffith's on her, on his back. Yep. <laughs> anyway, uh, after the fight, the uh, everyone's recovering from the horrible fight. Uh, Guts is being – I love this scene with Guts being uh, went, mended by Casca. And he's you know chastising her for being you know bad at sewing. And the, it, it's, it hurts so bad he's crying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a pretty funny moment. It's typical of Mira, you know, where – he just fought a monster. He's got real broken ribs and everything, and he's complaining about the you know sewing up his stitches. It's it's so you know typical of you know action movies and that kind of stuff that it's uh, yeah. it's a very very nice you know moment. He tells Casca that um, she's actually she's still the boss only because everyone's scared of her, which is just like the Black Dog Knights <laughs> comparing her to, to Wilds level. Yeah, two. you know it's actually he always made his jokes you know with Casca. He made it with Adam. When he was, you know, saying, you know, when he was saying he would, you know, take her up as a, you know, slave, he, he said so. He always, you know, made those jokes about her. Yeah. <laughs> Which always pisses her off. It's pretty funny. And the punchline to that is that she actually, you know, she's stitching him up and she stitches one really hard. She sees her, you see her yank the thread out, you know, which causes yeah. us to scream. <laughs> it's all you know all comically done given the context of what he just endured you know it's yeah stuff. and you know and it also re- reinforces the fact they're a couple you know that that's the kind of stuff you know it's a it's a couple moment you know to me yeah and, and, and of course we said on the next page with her you know coming to tears talking about you know if he doesn't care then die on your own obviously you know not what he, she th- actually feels and griffith catches that as well uh, looking, watching them interact, seeing that moment between them. Yeah, and especially since you know she comments on the fact he's gotten stronger and everything, but that he's reckless, and you know she just how to say she they share war and she has hard words for him, but the thing is she's just worried, 
worried yeah. for him, and she cries, you know, for that. And uh, again, it's a very touching moment between them. I may as well ask this now. I was going to ask it earlier. This is the second time that she's, she's reiterated that there's no shame in retreating, and if you wind up dead, then it's all over. Uh, you know, earlier she'd said, "Why does he have to keep fighting? Why can't he just retreat?" Sometimes, you know, her words here go against what I expect her attitude will be when she uh, becomes sane again. What do you think about that? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, it's a different like, circumstance, is the thing. Obviously, uh, now not, versus what yeah, it's, hard, it's hard to say, but I think uh, fundamentally her main objective would be the same. You know, like you know, why should they, he risk his life? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's no time to get into all that now, but something to think about for the future. Yeah, is, it's it's know. a great topic, and I think we should discuss it, and we probably will uh, soon. Uh, Casca exits the tent, or the, sorry, the, uh, wagon saying, telling Griffith that welcome home, you know, in this uh, touching look. And then it's just, um, actually, and then it's Judo giving her a breakdown of the reality of things now that he's had a chance to actually examine Griffith's body. Yeah. Uh, and that he says that he's not for sure, but, you know, it seems his tendons and his legs are ruined that, so standing and holding a sword will be impossible. And it dawns on her then. I love the, her expression. It, you know, she doesn't give anything away with the one, panel we see of her full face but then she's we see her trembling she yeah. she says oh or ah and but it would immediately is issuing orders on the next page so she's not processing this yet you know it struck her the reality has struck her but she's still taking command still yeah issuing- I, uh, I think she's internalizing it you know yeah. for now she, we see her turn around and her eyes are not seen you know and uh i think she's how to say yeah she she's keeping she's keeping it up for later you know very simply Right, and uh, meanwhile, Judo is already thinking about you know what will they do once they've crossed the border. You know, like he's worried about their future while she's just taking care of the immediate stuff. He's already thinking about the future, and of course, that page ends with you know three guards in the forest in the dark, dark forest. Right. This scene with Griffith and Guts is really one of the highlights for me in this volume uh, because of its placement in the series. You know, it's I mean, outside of a few quick little exchanges they have during the eclipse. They're not necessarily meaningful. This is their last like really meaningful scene together, you know, as, as friends uh, yeah. before the eclipse happens, before the chaos of all that and the big decision that's made. This is their last, you know, just kind of chill out moment together. Yeah. And Guts tr- tries to, what's that? Cheers Griffiths up, you know, saying, oh, it's just like last time with Zod. Mm-hmm. We are both wounded, but, you know, we survived. We're getting better, that kind of stuff. It's interesting, actually. I, I don't think I'd ever noticed this line before. He actually asks Griffith if he wants to take the the mask off. You know, if it's if it's if it's too hot in there. So you know, knowing that you know it's just me. You know, I'm. Yeah. But Griffith actually wants him to put the armor on, uh, which yeah. really emphasizes the point of the last you know episode start preview image. You know, putting the armor on. Yeah. Becoming that person. And I think I also think it's a great show of friendship. From mm-hmm. guts to propose him to remove the helmet, you know it shows that to him the previous relationship they had you know wh- when he was more than just more than the others you know he was truly his confident his friend the, the one guy he you know how to say he needed you know to be there you know well <clears throat> that's still on in guts mind it is it is also just very touching to see him. You know, helping the armor on of his old friend, you know, who's, yeah. who's unable to do it himself. It's just, 
you know, it's like if it's like if you know someone who has a disability and you see the the parents helping that child out or something like that. There's a there's a certain emotion associated with that, you know. Yeah. That, anyway, uh, Weald has uh, emerged and is to, you know crawling his way back to the camp, uh, yeah. scre- screaming that he doesn't want to die. So he's on his la- He knows he's on his last legs before he dies and plans to upset things before that time. Yeah. He actually manages to kill quite a few, quite a few guards, you know. Yeah. Wouldn't you know, be hard with his giant hands. Yeah. But he, I mean, even though he's crawling and can't even stand up, you know, mm-hmm. he's actually killed all the guys that were around him and, you know, killing everybody on his way to, you know, the, the camp. Yeah. Uh, with Griffith's full armor on, he tries to grab his sword, realizes he can't hold it. And Guts just comments that, you know, you're not ready yet. You know, soon you'll be swinging that uh, soon. And even, even Griffith maybe realizes or thinks that at this moment, which is what I mentioned earlier in this episode was that no one but Guts, no, sorry, no one that Judo, but Judo and Cass could truly know at this point the well, full potential. Honestly, I think, you know, I think it's possible. You know, we, we see Guts when Guts first saw Griffith's. Uh, in the in the cell, you know, he saw what damage was done, mm-hmm. and I I think so. I, I think you know, God is just trying to cheer him up, cheer him up. Mm-hmm. and I think even Griffiths at that point might already know that you know a full recovery is you know is not necessarily possible. But you know, I mean, they're trying it's they're trying to cheer each other up pretty much, yeah. you know, <clears throat> to think positive, and that's sure. when Wild intervenes. Right, so Wilder intervenes, and he has a he has a particular objective here. You know, he knows who Griffith is. He knew who Griffith was from the outset, but he wasn't really going according to his mission. He was this whole time. He's just been engaging in his own personal desire to, you know, create chaos and have excitement and enjoy and all that kind of stuff. But now he's actually, you know, using his power as an apostle to truly, you know, grab the whole situation by the balls and and, and take charge. Yeah. So. He actually urges um, – sorry, before we before we even, we even get to that, he talks about him. He doesn't want to end up inside the Vortex. And so we get the first mention of the Vortex in this volume three, pretty significant given things that are happening here. Um, he urges Griffith to summon the God Hand and that uh, you know they're the ones that can uh, turn things around for them in this moment. Yeah. And he says, you must have it. You must have the Behirat, you know, call them. Uh, and he actually uses yeah. the word God Hand at this time. Uh, yeah, you keep. Go ahead. I was just going to say his face as you see the vortex at the back, and there's another shot of him with a black background. You know, when he said "call them out," you know, uh, it's very you know. I'd say he truly looks desperate, and his desperation yeah. is very clear. And I think that reinforces what kind of a horrible fate the vortex represents for them. You know. Sure. Yeah, the, the, you're right. The look on his face after the Behirat panel, where his eyes are—and we've never seen him look like that in, in this entire yeah. sequence. You know, it's truly at the end of, it, of yeah. his life, he's really panicked. The, the shot of the God Hand is really cool as well. You know, we've seen that shot before, yep. a similar one. Uh, usually with Femto is there, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, as he says, so Griffiths, you know, recalls the vision he had in his cell, you know. Yeah, very astute of him to conclude that. Uh, the four members, and he saw four figures in that one little, you know, vision that he had. Uh, it's also the first time that Guts has heard the name Gotan, but you kind of, you can see him kind of, you know, mentally noting it in his head. It's interesting that, you know, he doesn't know the full significance of that yet, even though it's something that is going to encompass his life, you know, in the very near future. Mm. Um. 
Wow then uh, takes this opportunity to demoralize the troops by uh, – it comments that you know the look on their eyes is so full of hope even though they're clinging to something that has been broken. And so he uh, begins tearing Griffith's armor off piece by piece and Casca you know, screams for him to stop. Uh, and there's the horrible shot of Griffith completely uh, with no armor and you can see just – you know, we've seen it before, but never in such sharp light, you know, uh, what had been done to his body. And now the troops know the full story that, you know, there's no chance of him ever leading them in the way that they hope. So all the cards are on the table now, unfortunately, and done so in the least uh, graceful way possible. But, of yeah. course, you know, a monster. Um, and you see the look in everyone's eyes as they realize, you know, things have changed Uh and we deal with these emotions more fully in volume 12, so there's not much to focus on here. But he, he grabs uh, Griffith's neck and is... Uh, yeah. Actually, he grabs, he has a helmet itself, you know. Like sure. He, he could rip his head off. Right. Yeah, keeps referring to him as a toy, uh, given his size and everything. Uh, Guts can't do anything because he's basically, you know, holding Griffith ransom. But yeah. then he realizes that Griffith doesn't have it, uh, doesn't have the yeah. it. And he's dying, you know. He says, you know, his vision is fading. He's, you know. Yeah, actually, Guts comments on it. You actually see, like, a spray of blood. I can't remember what panel it is, but uh, as he's breathing, basically, yeah. uh, blood is going everywhere. He's, so he doesn't have much longer. And then, again, it goes crazy as he realizes he doesn't have to be here, which is yeah. when Zod arrives. Of course. We've talked about this before. So I'm not going to go into it too much, but you know Zod's arrival and Zod's intervention—it's uh, controversial to say the least. You know, for a long time I've thought maybe Zod—I don't, you know—he's not the kind of guy that would carry out orders of the God Hand, and the God Hand don't have orders, decrees like that, in which we get into in this next page. So then, why would he choose to do so? Well, he says, uh, you know, I have the free will to do this, just as you do. So he's doing it for his own reasons, but. I also think, you know, and you have said this, but you've said this before, Azil, that he doesn't like that a loser like Wild is basically trying to interrupt something like an eclipse or a ceremony, something with all this, uh, so with so much involved that a loser like him would disrupt things. It just doesn't yeah. seem, fit. it doesn't seem fitting. Pretty much, yeah. And, uh, you know, like we said this before, but we see Zod uh, flying over the castle. So he was, you know, almost certainly flying towards the eclipse because it's, it's about to begin. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he, you know, comes across this scene and, you know, I mean, what would he do? What is Zod's interest not to have, you know, uh, like you said, a loser like that pretty much spoils the party by spilling the beans about the eclipse and, you know, possibly even killing Griffiths in the process. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he just disposes of him. I like that, you know, obviously he's, he's uh, tearing, he's going to tear Weald in half uh, using his horns as the fulcrum. But before he does all this, uh, he actually gives, uh, he, he and Griffith have like a, a look. They can kind of yeah. exchange, exchange a look. And Gr- Griffith is just, you know, full of terror. But uh, the look in Zod's eyes, it's its unreadable completely. It's al- almost like he knows what this man's future is, you know. And maybe that's all it is, and that's all the exchange is meant for. But, you know, they, these two have a different relationship now. And so uh, I don't think I can transplant that here or anything. But it's interesting to think about uh, these two characters mm-hmm. and their paths crossing again in the future. Yeah. Um. So Weld is saying that you know he shouldn't have any problem with doing this because uh, apostles are only given one order and they just do as you will. Uh, so then Zod just counters that doing this is also my free will and you know tears him in half. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> Pretty proper way for him to be killed. Yeah. Um, Zod, before Zod leaves, he tells him, he tells Griffith that the Behirat will ter- return to your hand. Yeah. Uh, and then as he's flying away, Guts asks him about the, uh, the eclipse. What I like that, you know, Guts is ballsy enough to just have an exchange with this giant monster that's ripping that our monster yeah. in half. You know, he just wants to get these answers. <laughs> Doesn't care about it, just answers, asks him anyway. Yeah. And, and Zod uh, just does it and so, you know, soon. Yeah, yeah. The simple, the simple reply. There's some, there's some cool panels here. We're, we're kind of going fast because we're running out of time in case you guys haven't noticed, but. Uh, there's some really cool shots as as the the Falcons watch him fly away. Particularly, I like how Carcass is is, is drawn, yeah, directly yeah, overhead really... like that, you know, and the yeah. look of amazement, I guess. And the, just a general shot of Zod flying away with the guys, you know, underneath. It's uh, it's really well done. It's very well executed. Yeah, uh, the way Zod's wings are spread as well before he goes, and you know, and again in dramatic fashion, we see that happen a lot when he. He un- unveils his wings like that. The shots are almost framed around his wings in some yeah. of these panels. Um, and then we get probably one of the most interesting, uh, I mean, I think it's one of the most interesting phenomenon in the, in the Berserk universe, the way the Vortex interacts and is a part of the Apostles. Uh, yeah. the, the Vortex comes to claim, uh, what's it, what's is, what's, what is its part of the Apostle? You know, the, the, um, the, the body. Sure. The soul, the, the, the word I'm looking for is not coming to me, but the, the tainted part of the of the soul. Well, you know, pretty much uh, the whole soul belongs to the vortex that the thing. That's why the the corporal body is left behind, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, as a human shape, you know, because uh, what gave the corporal body its power is uh, the corruption of the soul. So when the soul is taken away, all that's left is a human part, purely human and devoid of, uh, well, the form of host. Right. Um, Guts and everyone sees this, you know, totally insanely supernatural thing happening. It's really what's happening is the body's being torn apart from the, from the inside. It's kind of imploding in on this, on this vortex. And before that completely happens, Guts gets a glimpse of the full thing, like the other dimension that's there as the, you know, the hands are being drawn in and you see this chain of body parts and different amalgamation of bodies as it spirals down into, into the, the world, the vortex. And no one really knows exactly what to say at that point. No one even comments on it, really, other than what did we just see? And the final yeah. page of the volume is that this this old man was was him all along. Yeah, and, with a sword still through its neck. Right. Yeah, and, and of course we we know that's the case. Uh, that you know they they retain the the body retains the damage that was done to it. But we saw the count at the end of volume three uh, after yep. everything was done as well. Just the, the remainder of his body, which was not much. And we've commented earlier on this episode about the significance of Wild's true form being uh, an old man, uh, and, and about what that could mean about his own, his chosen apostle form, his chosen actions as an apostle. And again, I just wanted to reiterate that I've always thought that it's because he's, you know, wanted to. He's correcting the mis- what he believes are the mistakes of his of his youth or his wasted life. It's something we see Wild say throughout this volume is that you know adults, you know, start thinking about consequences and waste their lives and. He chose a completely uh, selfish and uh, just uh, way of life that would just bring despair to others just for fun, basically. Well, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I think it's pretty typical of apostles. Was they're just going to enjoy themselves and do what they want. And, you know, doesn't matter what the consequences that has to other people. Yeah. 
And the volume ends uh, in a very perfectly bookended manner uh, in that the chapter of Wild is, is closed completely and volume 12 picks up with the remainder of what's left of the Falcons now that they've been demoralized and their future is kind of up in the air. I just like how, you know, sometimes Mira nails the ending of a volume. And this is one of those like picturesque moments where everything is wrapped up in that particular section involving Wild. Yeah. Well, that is all we have time for today. Uh, apologize for rushing at the end there, but we, we had to get things done. Uh, I think we did a good job, though. It's an interesting volume. It's one of the standout volumes, I think, in terms of uh, fights. It's one of the more memorable ones. Again, a volume almost completely dedicated to an apostle fight. So pretty cool stuff. Uh, from here on out, things are getting heavy. Uh, as everyone knows, 12 and 13 are some of the most dense and significant of the series. So going to take our time on reading, rereading those. I already have a lot of notes, and I haven't even given it my full attention yet, just on the, the eclipse in general and uh, the character arcs that are coming to a close here. So we'll get into those in a couple of weeks, so stay tuned for that. Um, there is no news of an episode yet. Uh, the next chance for one to come is in late November, but we don't know that that's a, for sure or not. So we will find out more. Uh, I'm sure people will be posting on the thread, so if you're interested in that stuff, uh, check the forums more often, and we'll be there to discuss the episode whenever it comes out. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and we'll talk to you guys later. See ya.